Hi, it's Miss Stanton, and we're going to try this again. So I will be reading chapters 13 and 14 to you guys. I have no idea what happened with the audio last night. I recorded it the same way I always do, but I'm hoping this time around it gets recorded, you can hear it, and then we'll go ahead and finish up that book when we're in class Thursday and Friday together. So I hope you enjoy. Chapter 13. It did not register at first. The night had grown very cold and still, and the shelter was warm, and he was in that state just between walking and sleeping when he heard a sharp, blistering crack of sound. He was half dreaming and thought it was part of a dream, but it cracked again, a little more away, and then a third time very far away. By the third shot, he was on his feet and had pushed the door away and was standing in the opening. Hey! Over here! I'm over here! He listened and heard two other, much more muted shots, and then nothing. Since he slept with no pants and his underwear had long since given up the ghost, he was standing nude in the cold air. For a second or two, his body heat held, but then it started down fast, and he felt the cold come into him. Still, he stood, listening, holding his breath, and he heard one more pop. So far away, it could hardly be heard, and after that, no further sound. Hey, he yelled one more time, but there was no answer, and the cold was getting to him, so he closed the door and climbed back into the bag. It was insane. All that shooting in the dark, who was doing it, and what were they shooting at? He would have to go out tomorrow and look for tracks, at least where the nearest shot seemed to come from, somewhere just across the lake. And why didn't they answer him? They must have heard him. What was the matter with them? Was it some maniac? And why hadn't Brian seen them or heard him before? He meant to sleep, was tired enough to sleep, but he could not get the image out of his mind. Some crazy man with a high-powered rifle was out there somewhere shooting at things in the dark. So Brian put a little more wood on the fire and blew on the coals to get it going and sat all night, dozing intermittently, waiting for daylight so that he could look for tracks. At first light, he got into his clothing and slid the door open and stepped outside into a wall of cold. He had read about cold. A teacher had read poems to him about Alaska when he was small and heard stories and seen shows on the Discovery Channel on television, but had never felt anything like this. His breath stopped in his throat. It felt as if the moisture on his eyes would freeze, and he did, he did feel the lining of his nose tighten and freeze. There was no wind, not even a dawn breeze. It was absolutely still. And when he took a step forward, he felt the air moving against his eyes, and he had to blink to keep them from freezing. 30, 40, 50 below. He couldn't have guessed how cold it was. And he thought, this is how people die in this cold. They stop, and everything freezes, and they die. He pulled his hood up, and, would, and with surprise, crude as it was, as much as it increased the warmth around his head, then he pulled the mittens on and picked up his killing lance long since repaired from the moose kill, and moved forward, and as soon as he moved, he felt warmer. The snow was dry, like crystallized flour or sugar, and seemed to flow away from his legs as he walked. He made a circle of the camp, walked out onto the lake ice, which was covered with snow as well, and back around and saw no tracks other than rabbit and mouse. Then he started to move toward where the sound had come from, working slowly, amazed that he started to warm up and even feel comfortable. Back in the hood, the air was keeping from, 
kept from moving and his face grew warmer and the fact that his head was warm seemed to warm his whole body and once he became accustomed to the cold he could look around and appreciate the world around him it was a world of beauty it's like being inside glass he thought a beautiful glass crystal the air was so clear he could see tiny twigs needles of pine trees 50 75 yards away and so still that he that when a chickadee flew from a tree to the meat pile near the entrance where they flocked and picked at the meat, he could actually hear the rush of air as the bird flapped its wings. Tracks went everywhere. Once he was in the woods away from camp, there were so many rabbit prints, he felt there must be hundreds of them just living around the shelter. The tracks were so thick in some places that they had formed packed trails where the rabbits had run over the same place until it packed a narrow highway. Some of the snow was packed so densely that it would hold Brian up and he walked single file on the tracks where the brush permitted to keep from sinking into the snow. But he was looking for rabbit tracks, but he wasn't looking for rabbit tracks. Somebody had been out there firing a gun and it hadn't snowed during the day. So there must be tracks, had to be tracks, but there was none. He moved farther out from the camp, circled again, making wide arcs in the direction the sound came from, and there were no tracks, or none other than mice, deer, something he thought was a fox, and about a million rabbits. He stopped at midday and stood by a tree trying to find some other sign, something that would tell him how they did it. Had, had, he, been, had he dreamt the whole thing? Could he have been dreaming of gunshots? Or maybe he'd been alone too much and was going insane. That could happen. It happened all the time. People went crazy under far less stress than Brian had been under. Maybe that was it. He dreamt it or had finally gone insane. Sure. Crack. It was near his head and he dropped to his knees. They were shooting at him and they were close, right next to him. No dream this time. No insanity. They were right on top of him. He rolled to his left and came up in a crouch behind a large pine, waiting, watching. Nothing. He could see absolutely nothing out of the ordinary, just brush and trees, and there. He'd been looking along the ground, and he brought his eyes up a bit so that they were scanning ten feet up, and he saw it. A poplar tree was shattered. Bits of wood and bark seemed to have been blown out as if it had been hit by an exploding shell. It was still standing, but was severely damaged, and he thought for a moment that somebody was playing pranks, shooting a tree ten feet off the ground, but it hadn't been shot. He moved closer to the tree and studied it, and there was no evident bullet hole, just the shattered wood. And it was, and it is likely he would never have known except that he actually saw it happen, and it was almost the last thing he saw happen on Earth. Directly in front of him, not 15 feet away, and just slightly higher than his head, a foot-long section of tree exploded with a shattering, cracking sound that nearly deafened him. And at the same time, a sliver of wood from the tree came at him like an arrow. There was no time to dodge, move, or even blink. The, the sliver, a foot long and slightly bigger in diameter than his thumb and sharp as a needle, came at his face, brushed violently past his ear, and stuck halfway out the back of the leather hood. He reached up to grab the, the sliver and with his mittens on, but couldn't because they were too bulky, and threw the right one off and grabbed the wood with his bare hand. It was frozen solid so cold that it stuck to the warm skin of his fingers and he had to shake it off. The tree was frozen all the way through. It was strange, but he'd never thought of it, never considered what happened to trees when it got cold. He just figured they got through it somehow. They just got cold. 
but there was moisture in them, sap, and when it got very cold, the sap must freeze. He went up to the tree that had just exploded and saw the whole section seemed to have blown out of the side, maybe a foot and a half long and four or five inches wide, just shattered and blown apart, and the force seemed to have come from inside the tree, and he stood back and stared at the wound and thought of it, and finally came up with a theory. The tree would freeze on the outside first, a ring of frozen wood all the way around. Then when it got truly cold, as it had last night, the inside would freeze. When liquid freezes, it expands. He had learned that in Miss Clammon's science class, or tries to expand. But with the wood frozen all around there was no space for the center to expand. It simply stayed there, locked in the center, while the outside held it in, and the containment forced the center to build up pressure, and more pressure, and still more, until it couldn't be contained and blew out the side of the tree. It wasn't gunshots. It was trees exploding. There were no crazy people running around with guns, and Brian hadn't gone off the deep end. It was just winter. That was all. Brian stared at the tree and then around the woods and knew one thing now for certainty. Everything was different. The woods in summer were a certain way, and now they were a different way, a completely different place. And if he was to stay alive, he would have to learn this new place, this winter woods. He would have to study it and know it. The next time, he might not be so lucky. Chapter 14. It proved to be much harder than he had thought it would be. That night, in front, the, that night, a front came in and the temperature rose, a welcome relief, to probably even zero, and it snowed. This time it snowed close to six inches, and while that would not have been so bad in itself, it came on top of snow that was already there. All in all, it added up to just under two feet of snow, dry powder, and when he tried to move in the woods, it was too much. It came over the top of his cylinder boots and froze his legs, and he had to go back to the shelter to get rid of the snow and dry his boots out. This, he said, sitting by the fire, is as bad as it gets. The truth was, it could be fatal. He needed to move in the woods to get firewood, not to mention hunting and studying to learn. And if he could not move without freezing his feet, he could not get wood, and without wood, he would freeze to death. It seemed to be a wall. He sat burning the next two days' worth of wood and felt the cold waiting, waiting. Dark came suddenly at four in the afternoon, and he sat in the dark for a while and thought of the problem and was leaning back gazing into the fire when he remembered the rabbits. They grew larger feet. He had to do the same. As soon as he thought it, he smiled and thought of snowshoes. They had completely slipped his mind. All he had to do was make a pair of snowshoes. I'll get right on it tomorrow morning, he thought, lying back to doze in his bag and was nearly asleep, smiling in comfort and ease now that he had solved the problem, when he realized that he didn't have the slightest idea how to make a pair of snowshoes. It, came, it kept him awake for another hour until he simply couldn't keep his eyes open any longer, and then he fell asleep without a solution. Two bows. It came in the half-sleep just before he awakened. It was cold, the fire was burned down, and he felt snug and warm in the bag and didn't want to get up, and lay with his eyes closed, his head tucked down inside the bag, and he dozed, and was almost back asleep when the thought hit him. Two bows. If he made two bows of wood, then tied the ends together, used some kind of cross pieces to hold them apart, and keep them in a rough oval, he would have the right shape for snowshoes and it proved to be almost that easy. He cut wood from the willows down by the lake 
and brought four five-foot-long pieces into the shelter where it was warm, along with some other shorter sections he'd cut from the lower and thicker branches on the same willow. They were frozen solid, but they thawed quickly by the fire and were as limber as they'd ever been in the summer. He peeled the bark from them easily with the knife and then took two of them and tied the ends together with moose hide lacing. After they were tied together, he pulled the center sections apart until he could put the hatchet between them to hold them apart, about 12 inches, and then he used the knife to cut cross pieces and notches to, at the ends of the shorter sections to fit around the wood of the long side and make cross braces. He put two cross braces to hold the long sides apart and then tied the cross braces in place with strips of moose hide lacing and had the frame for a snowshoe. He made a, a second one the same way. All of this didn't take two hours and moved on to the next step. He would have to fill them with lacing and there were plenty of moose hide left, but it was frozen outside. He brought it inside and let it thaw near the fire for the rest of the afternoon until he could unfold it and start to cut lacing to make the web of the snowshoe. Here it was all mystery to him. He had seen pictures of snowshoes and had a vague idea that they seemed to be a web, kind of like a tennis racket, a very crude tennis racket, but that was it. He had plenty of moose hide left and he started by cutting a lace half an inch wide. He did not know how much he would need, but figured it would be long. It would, it should be long. So he kept cutting, running along the edge of a large piece of hide, cutting around and around the edge, stopping often to sharpen the knife of the stone until he had a pile of lacing lying on the ground by the fire. By this time it was dark, but he fed small bits of wood to the fire. The shelter was very tight and stayed surprisingly warm for just a small flame and continued working. He did not know how to make the rest of the snowshoe. He had seen pictures and knew it had to be a web of some sort, but could not visualize how to start. In the end, he just started in the middle and worked to the ends, trying the strips of moose hide crosswise, fastened to each side, making horizontal strips about two inches apart. Each strap pulled tight and tied off in a double knot. The hide was hard and he had to soften it by rubbing it over a stick to break it down which slowed him, and it was late by the time he'd finished the cross pieces on one shoe, but instead of going to bed, he continued. The strips that ran the long way, he tried simply weaving into place, but they were too loose, and so he tied them off to each cross strap as he went from one end to the shoe of the shoe to the other, again with the straps about two inches apart. It was moving toward morning when he finished the webbing on one shoe, and he almost laughed at how it looked. He had not taken the fur off the hide strips, and there was enough fur to fill all the holes with fuzz. He started to burn it off and then realized it would help him keep help him up, keep him up in soft snow. He finally crawled into bed to sleep about four in the morning, still smiling at how the shoe looked. He slept hard until daylight, about nine o'clock, and then kindled the fire and started it with the coals that were still glowing. He had chopped some chunks of moose meat and he put a kettle on with slivers of meat and snow to make a breakfast stew. And as soon as the shelter was warm, he went back to work. The second shoe went much faster because of the practice he'd had on the first one. And by midday, he had fin finished webbing it. He ate the stew and drank the broth and then looked once more at his handiwork. They looked odd to say the least, downright ugly. The fur was so thick he could hardly see the lacing, but they also looked strong, and now all he had to do was find a way to fix them to his feet. He could think of no bind pictures, no memories that showed snowshoe bindings, and finally he simply tied straps across down the middle as tightly as possible to jam his feet between.
Then there was nothing to do but try them. He banked the fire so that the coals would hold for time, got dressed, and took the shoes outside. They were very tight on his boots and felt snug, and he set off trying to walk on them at once. Around the shelter, the snow was packed down where he walked, and the shoes were easy, clumsy, but he could skid them along. As soon as he moved away from the shelter in fresh snow, everything changed. He took two steps and fell flat on his face in the snow. The tips kept digging in and tripping him, and he tried holding his toes up, which didn't help, and continued stumbling along, falling over frontward until he thought of moving the foot strap forward a bit. This just took a minute, and then when he stepped off, his foot was farther forward and lifted the front of the shoe first, cleared the tip, and pulled it across the top of the snow. It made all the difference. He tripped twice, more before he developed a pace that kept his legs far enough apart to prevent the shoe from hitting each other, and then he moved into deeper snow. It was amazing. The snow was powdery, and the shoes didn't keep him right on top, as he thought they might, but he only went down three or four inches and stopped. Instead of his foot going all the way down into two feet of snow, and as, as an added benefit, the snowshoes kept the snow away from his feet and legs. He didn't get snow down his boots. His legs stayed warmer and drier, and that kept the rest of his body warmer and drier. But more, much more than that, he could move again. He moved straight to a stand of dead poplar and a quarter mile poplar a quarter mile down the lake shore. Poplars often died standing up for the standing for that reason stayed dry and out of the snow and were good firewood he hadn't been able to get at them because of the snow but the shoes made it easy he broke off limbs and knocked over small dead trees and walking with a kind of forward churning motion he spent the rest of the day bringing in wood until he had a huge pile next to the shelter enough for a week it was incredible he thought how the snowshoes seemed to change everything change his whole attitude he'd been closing down he realized settling into the shelter, not paying attention to things, getting more and more into his own thinking, and the shoes changed all of that. He felt like moving, hunting, seeing things, and doing things again. Thinking of hunting brought his food supply into his thoughts, and he brushed the snow away from the moose meat and was stunned to see how much he'd eaten. He hadn't gained weight. He had lost a small amount, as a matter of fact, and yet apparently without knowing it, had been eating like a wolf. He'd eaten both front shoulders, the back, and hump area, and one back leg. All the meat was chopped off the bones in those areas. All he really had left was the left rear leg and then chopping and boiling the bones to make meat jelly stew. He would have to hunt again, and that night he spent the hours until he slept making sure his war bow and big arrows were in shape, checking the lance and sharpening the hatchet and knife and retightening his snowshoes where they'd become loose from gathering wood all day. That night, the temperature dropped like a stone, so that he heard trees exploding again, but he slept hard and down and tight in his shelter and dreamed of walking on white clouds. <laughs>